The New Testament reading comes from Matthew 19, beginning in verse 16. And behold, a man came to him, saying, Teacher, what, must good, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter eternal life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. One Ancient Hope, it's good to be with you this morning as we continue our series through the Gospel of Matthew. And before we turn to this text, let us turn to the Lord in prayer. God, our Father, we thank you for your word. This word that calls us, that creates us, that crafts us, Lord, into what you intend us to be. We thank you, Lord, for your gospel that is proclaimed in your word. And I pray, Lord, that all the words that follow would be faithful to this text. And Lord, through your spirit, I pray that you would more fully apply the gospel to our heads, to our hands, and to our hearts. And we ask this, Lord, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, as, as we look at this passage, I, I want to do so under three basic headings. I want us to look at goodness, and then I want us to look at this man's sorrow at goodness, and then I want us to look at the giving goodness of God. So let's start then by, by really getting a handle on what goodness is as it's presented to us in this passage. Again, the passage starts with the following exchange. Behold, a man came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. Only one is good, Jesus tells us. And the implication is that this one is God. Only God is good. This is how Jesus begins the dialogue. And so if we're going to get this passage right, we have to get this statement right. But what does it mean that only God is good? 
And, and how is it that this relates to everything else that follows in the passage? Well, here I, I want us to appeal to, to what is often called the, the Christian doctrine of participation. And this is a doctrine that stretches all the way back to the early church fathers, to the greatest theologians of our own Reformed tradition. We start with this basic fact that God is being itself. To, to be God is simply to be. God, who he is, he cannot help but live and be and possess the fullness of who he is. God does not receive anything from outside of himself. Not his own being, not his own existence. Everything is from God. But this is not true for creatures. We receive our being, we receive our, our very life as a kind of existence, as a gift from God. God makes us from nothing. And without the continual gift from God by which he gives us our very life, we would simply return to nothing. We're from nothing, and without God, we would return to nothing. God doesn't create us and walk away like a watchmaker could make a, a watch and, and wind it and sort of leave it off on its own. If God left us, we would be uncreated. At every instance, we exist. We're alive only by the continual gift of God. And this receiving is what the Christian tradition has long called participation. It's the creature's full and complete independence upon the God who makes us and sustains us. We participate in God in that we receive our very being in life from God, as Paul quotes approvingly of the Greek poets, in him we live and move and have our being. And please note that when the Christian tradition speaks of participating in God, it does not mean that the creature is divine in any way. In fact, it assumes the very greatest distinction between God and all of creation, God is being in life itself, yet we live only as God gives us life. With that, God is goodness itself. <clears throat> we talked about this in an earlier sermon, that God is his goodness and God is his wisdom. He is his love. He is his power. Any perfection taken to the infinite degree just is God. And so God is his goodness. God alone is good in this sense. God's perfect goodness, then, is life itself. And so God alone is good because God is uncreated, underived, unreceived, non-dependent, primal goodness. And so God alone is good. We, however, are only good by participation in God's goodness. We're only good to the extent that we receive goodness from God and receive it as a gift. Think of the acorn. The acorn receives God's full goodness when it receives its full being from God and becomes an oak tree. The oak tree is a greater participation. It is a greater receiving of the goodness that God gives the acorn. God alone is good, and the oak tree receives more goodness from God than the acorn. The same is true for us as humans. When we become fully what God intends us to be, we more fully participate and so receive the goodness of God. 
In the resurrection, when we reach the human equivalent of the oak tree, we will most fully possess and express the gifted goodness of God. For the human, as for any creature, this fullness of goodness just is fullness of life and being. But you might ask, is any of that really what this passage, what this text is getting at? But take note, Christ frames this whole interaction upon our being like God, upon our more fully receiving and possessing and imaging God's goodness. Christ tells the man, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. The Greek word here translated perfect is teleos. And as you might guess, this is connected to that dual Greek and English word, telos. Specifically, teleos is the, the adjective form of the Greek noun telos. Also note that this is only one of two times that Matthew uses the word teleos. The other is in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, Christ tells his disciples, your Father in heaven makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You therefore must be teleos as your heavenly Father is teleos. Biblical scholar Leon Morris describes this verse's use of teleos as follows. Having attained the end, the telos, the aim, if anything has fully attained that for which it was designed, it is perfect. Or the theologian Ephraim Radner writes this about this passage. He tells us that Jesus is calling us to perfected completeness. To borrow again the classical example, the teleos acorn just is the oak tree. Christ is calling us to be full, to be complete, to be whole, to be flourishing. He's calling the human to the goodness and fullness of life, wherein we receive an image and reflect the fullness of life that is God himself. And interestingly, Jesus frames this command to be like God in the very categories of creation. God makes the sun rise and the rain fall on those who both love him and reject him. God lovingly creates and sustains all those who exist. God loves all of his creation. He's the one who at every instant keeps it alive by his pure gift. And we are to be perfect in this way. We are to be good in a way that reflects God. But think about God's goodness. The one who is alone good shows us his goodness through giving. God gives the creature. God gives all of us our very life. God gives food and rain and all the other good things in creation. God, his goodness is a goodness that gives. It overflows. It spills over in fullness. It splashes abundant life onto what would otherwise be a desert of nothingness. In the Sermon on the Mount, we receive and possess the goodness, this goodness, by loving those who love us and hate us, just as does God. In Matthew 19, the rich young man is called to be teleos, 
perfect, whole, complete, flourishing, good, as God is all these things. And he's to do so by selling all that he has and giving it to the poor. He's called to receive the goodness of the giving God by giving as God gives. None is good but God alone. God's goodness is the only true goodness that there is. All other goodness, the goodness of creatures like us, is simply a goodness that is received from God. And that means we are only good to the extent that our goodness is derived and received from God himself. To be like God, then, you must give like God. There's no other goodness that exists for the human. Again, there is only one that's good. What does that mean for this story, for this passage, for this account of the rich young man? This brings us to our second point, sorrow at goodness. We should begin by saying sorrow itself is a natural consequence and result of the unnaturalness of sin. Christian sorrow flows naturally from the unnaturalness of the present world. But all proper Christian sorrow, sorrow for the right reasons, will one day pass away when Christ returns and sets all things right. This is not to dismiss or to take our sorrow lightly. Quite the contrary, this is to validate Christian sorrow. Proper Christian sorrow is a sorrow for all the ways that we in this world have departed from God's goodness. And so proper Christian sorrow will cease when Christ returns and when Christ restores all things. And to say that Christ will heal all sorrows is to say that our sorrows are true and proper sorrows. A doctor can only heal a true and real sickness. A doctor can't heal a sickness that we only imagine ourselves to have. The same is true for God in his healing of our sorrows. But in Christ's interaction with this rich young man, we find an improper sorrow. It's a sorrow that refuses to be healed by the goodness of God, and so it is a false sorrow. Jesus tells the rich young man, if you would enter life, Keep the commandments. In response, the man, he he wants more specificity. He asks Jesus, what particular commandments does Jesus have in mind? And so Jesus replies, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The man appears confident that he has kept all of these, but he's left wondering, what is it that I still lack? And so note something here. He identifies a lack. He knows something is not right. He knows somehow eternal life is not connected or lined up with the way that he is going about fulfilling these commandments. He knows there's a disconnect. All of these I have kept. What do I still lack? This should surprise us. Because on the face of it, this man has everything. He appears to lack nothing. He's respected by society. He's wealthy and well-established. He has all of the things by which we expect a person to flourish, to be happy, to be whole, to be complete. And still, he asks, what do I still lack? 
St. Augustine is, is helpful here. He, he lays out a spectrum that goes from the highest human happiness, happiness to the deepest human sorrow. Augustine tells us that the happiest are those people who desire rightly and they have fully what they desire. This fullest human happiness is experienced by the saints in the resurrection, the ones who desire God above all else and they enjoy God to the fullest human capacity. The second happiest are those who desire rightly but but only have in part what they rightly desire. This is the happiness of the saints in this life. We desire God, but we're still awaiting the restoration of all things, including ourselves. And so now we can only enjoy God in part. The third level, which is an existential sorrow and sadness, are those who desire wrongly, and they don't have what they wrongly desire. These are the people who desire some good thing in creation with a love that is only meant for God, yet they don't have that thing. A trap that we can all fall into. The fourth level are those who are saddest of all. They are those who desire wrongly, and they have the very thing that they wrongly desire. They desire some lesser good in creation more than God, and they have that thing. This rich young man is at the fourth level. We read, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. The emphasis here is not so much on the man's possessions as much as the fact that this man desired and loved these possessions more than eternal life. As Jesus, God the Son, says to God the Father in John 17, this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. To know and love and enjoy the one true God, the one true goodness, this is eternal life, this is flourishing, this is what we can now taste in part, and one day we'll taste in full. Yet this man loves and desires riches more than God. If you would be perfect, if you would be whole, if you would flourish, if you would come into full human fruition, then sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and follow me. Then you would be teleos as God is telling us. Then you would be receiving and imaging God's own goodness. As commentators point out, Jesus cites here only from the second table of the Ten Commandments, those commands that structure our life within the community, those commands that teach us how to love our neighbor as ourselves. And so accordingly, as readers, we're forced to ask, what about the first four commandments? Those commands that teach us to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Well, these commands are wrapped up in Christ's command to sell all of your possessions, and most importantly, to follow me. To follow Christ is to begin to taste eternal life. In Augustine's framework, it is to desire rightly and in part to begin to possess what you rightly desire. Christ here exposes this man's ultimate and deepest desire and love. Christ presents him with eternal life, the one thing that he should desire above all else, but the rich man rejects it. 
He loves the lesser good of wealth more than the greatest good of God. He turns away from the one who is alone good, from the one from whom all lesser goods receive their good. He's like a man who, instead of dwelling in a beautiful landscape, instead tries to vacation on a picture of landscape. He's like a man who sets up a tent on a photograph of some wonderful waterfall or some vibrant valley. A beautiful photograph is a wonderful thing. Look at it, delight in it, meditate upon it, frame it. But please don't try to live in it. This, of course, would be ridiculous. But this is what all of us do when we turn from God's goodness to the derived goodness of creation. We attempt to live in the image, to live in the photograph, making the good and true image do more than it was ever meant to do. C.S. Lewis is helpful on this score. He writes, God gives us what he has, not what he has not. He gives us the happiness that there is, not the happiness that is not. If we will not learn to eat the only food that the universe grows, the only food that any possible universe could ever grow, then we must starve eternally. Either we will love and desire and receive God now in part and one day in full, or we will starve eternally. We're like someone who tries to grow an acorn into an oak tree by giving it gravel and concrete and dust and darkness. The fact is, either the acorn will take in sun and soil and water and air, or it will starve and shrivel eternally. The acorn is not being closed-minded or stubborn. The acorn is simply being an acorn. The same is true for us. Only God, only his goodness and wisdom and joy and fullness of life can make us grow into what God intends us to become. When scripture tells us this very fact about humans, it's not being closed-minded or stubborn. It's simply telling us that we are human. But this man desires the riches that he already has more than God. He's not like the person who desires riches and does not have them. That person might still think, if I only had wealth, then finally I'd be happy and complete and all of my problems would be solved. That person would still be able to live in the lesser but more naive sorrow of the false fantasy. But the rich young man, he has his greatest desire. He has what he wrongly desires, and as such, he can't help but recognize a lack, a deficit in being, a void of flourishing in fullness and happiness and gladness. This is the existential and often cynical sorrow of the celebrity who thought fame would make everything better. Of the professor at the top of their field whose seminal work still didn't cure their deep insecurity and lack of purpose. Of the spouse who moves on from one man or one woman of their dreams to another and another and another and another. Of the football player who still struggles with all of the same problems the morning after winning the Super Bowl. Of the parents whose children have exceeded their wildest expectations of success but still feel a deep void in their soul. They know the deep existential sorrow of the rich young man. This is a sorrow that most of us will never know. 
And most of us, we will foolishly look at people like the rich young man and we will see his sorrow and we'll tell ourselves it would be different for us. Yes, yes, I, I know those things don't make people happy, but trust me, I am the exception. It would actually bring me joy and satisfaction. You know, all those things that failed to give everybody else. And so we go right on wrongly desiring what they have, but we don't. But the rich young man, he knows better, and so he has a deep, deep sorrow. He has what he most greatly desires, and yet he knows that it does not make him happy. Christ presents him with eternal life, his very greatest good, that of knowing and loving and enjoying the triune God. And this man looks it right in the face, literally right in the face of Christ. And he rejects the offer to follow Christ and flourish. And so, when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had many possessions. He has exactly what he wrongly wants, and because of this, he is absolutely miserable. This is the deep existential sorrow that the Christian tradition calls acedia. In the words of Thomas Aquinas, it is sadness at the divine good. We don't even want the one thing that alone can make us happy. We hate it. We reject it. And so we are stricken with a sorrow that cannot be healed, which means it's a false and fallen sorrow. Again, if Christ cannot and will not heal it, heal it then it cannot and will not be healed. There is no healing the sorrow we feel in response to our only true good. There is only repentance from it. Again, as Lewis tells us, God gives what he has, not what he has not. He gives the happiness that there is, not the happiness that there is not. God cannot and will not give us happiness without him. There is no such thing. And so we're presented with two options, absolute and eternal joy or absolute and eternal sorrow. Either we will follow Christ as he beckons us, or we, like the rich young man, will depart from Christ's presence in sorrow, and we will do so eternally. But does this mean that we must sell all of our possessions? The words of theologian Peter Lightheart are helpful here as he comments upon this passage. Lightheart writes, throughout the New Testament, Christians own things without reproach or qualms of conscience. Zacchaeus gives away half of his wealth to the people he defrauded, and Jesus commends him for that. Jesus calls the young man to absolute renunciation because the man is wealthy, and this is the thing he must renounce to enter life, because this is the idol that he must demolish. Throughout the book of Matthew, Jesus tells us sometimes that there is a need for a radical practice to keep us from sin. Figuratively speaking, Jesus calls us to gouge out our eyes and cut off our hands if these cause us to sin. And Christ here commands this man to just such a gouging. Yes, this is extreme. Yes, this is not specifically what all of us are called to do, as Lightheart points out. But Christ is warning this man just how deeply in bondage his heart is to riches. 
A good gift from God has become this man's God. So entrenched is this man in the love of money that drastic action is necessary. Go and sell all that you have. Wake up and realize that your riches have made you wretched. And so, Christ is also calling us to search our own hearts and ask what drastic practices we might need. What forms of radical gouging we must to perform to amputate some idol from our own heart. Consider an example of, of, of one such radical practice. The writer and professor Jeffrey Bilbrow, he recently penned a, a wonderful article entitled, Why I Am Not Going to Buy a Smartphone. Bilbrow, he, he doesn't mean to condemn those with smartphones. Far from it. He's not attempting to present himself as wiser or nobler. Far from it. Rather, the whole essay is about how he doesn't trust himself. He writes, First, not owning a smartphone doesn't make me more virtuous. The truth, in fact, lies in the opposite direction. I don't own a smartphone because I know that I lack the virtues needed to use it well. This is not a rejection of technology for Bill Bro. He, he points out that he actually has a Twitter account. Instead, he doesn't trust what a smartphone would do to him. The constant capability to check any and all websites, to buy things at any time, to be able to check out of any uneventful situation and escape into the screen. It's all just too much temptation for him. He's not going to buy a smartphone, not because he thinks more of himself, but because he thinks less of himself. He does point out that this can feel like pushing against the inevitable. He points out that we actually often need smartphones to access menus, to get taxis, even to gain entrance to some buildings. But he argues that it doesn't mean that it is inevitable. It can be different. You just have to be extremely intentional about it. And this is a good word for all of us. What brings us temptation? What puts temptation in our life that we assume is inevitable but really isn't? Really think about that. And answering this question requires the practice of intentionality, of thinking through our daily routines and taking absolutely nothing for granted. But at the same time, let us not move on too quickly from wealth. Let us not stop asking ourselves, how might God be calling me to be more generous with my resources? Wealth can work a deadening effect on the soul. We can come to look at it as our ultimate security and comfort and hope and goal and glory. Wealth has a special and insidious ability to replace God in our hearts as few other things can. And we need to be wary of this. We need to always recognize that we are all greedier than we think that we are. Christ himself warns against this danger. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. As Peter Lightheart points out, Jesus here uses the imagery of the largest Palestinian animal, the camel, going through the smallest opening, the eye of a needle. The point here, as Jesus tells us, is that with man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And this brings us to our third and final point the giving goodness of God. 
Recall that God alone is good, God alone is true and underived, uncreated, primal, self-existing goodness. All other goodness is only and ever from him. It's received from the creature, sorry, to the creature from God as a gift. God's giving is a giving goodness. And we are to be teleos as God is teleos. Just as God gives the good gifts of creation and sun and rain to all, so too are we to give graciously, both to those who love us and to those who hate us. Again, God's goodness is the only kind of goodness there is. And so if we are to receive an image and reflect and participate in his goodness, we must give. There is no non-giving goodness. There is no non-giving goodness. No such thing exists. God gives all of himself to us. God is pure and full act. God acts with all of himself and all that he does. God is a rushing river of life. God is a consuming fire of fullness. God is always and only himself, all of himself, and he gives himself to us as such. The rich young man is called to image God by quite literally giving all that he has, all of his possessions, God. God gives himself, all of himself, in all that he does. This man in imaging God is quite literally called to give all that he owns. And in fact, he is called to love God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and his neighbor as himself. And this man cannot do it. And neither can any of us do it. This goodness is too good. This giving is too great. The God that we are called to image is like a landscape too beautiful for our shaky brushes and our clumsy cameras to ever properly capture. We simply cannot do it. But there is one who can. Again, Christ tells us, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. If we are to enter into eternal life, we must be given entrance as a gift. Everything we have is a gift from God, and so why should we expect salvation to be any different? God requires humans to give all of themselves to him and to their neighbor. Again, such giving is the only kind of goodness there is. Yet because of sin, because of all the ways that we love the lesser goods in creation, because of our worship of wealth, or romance, or professional success, or Ivy League children, or any number of good gifts that we love as only God should be loved, we cannot give ourselves as we ought. But in Christ Jesus, God the Son became human and did just this in our place. In Christ's human nature, God, or sorry, Christ image God in the fullest way that a human life can image God. Christ is the human, the perfect human picture of giving goodness that is the very being of God. In Christ, God gave the perfect human life to himself for us. Christ is God's gift to God on our behalf. And so, yes, it's impossible for us, weakened by sin, we cannot give like this. But Christ has given himself fully and completely in our place. And he invites us to make him our own gift to God. He invites us to take him as our own sacrifice to God. 
We simply take the gift, we must simply take it, the gift that is Christ, and give it to God on our behalf. Christ is God's great gift to us that we are graciously invited to give back to God. As the medieval theologian Anselm of Canterbury writes, What indeed can be conceived of more merciful than that God the Father should say to a sinner, Take my only begotten Son and give him on your behalf, and that the Son himself should say, Take me and redeem yourself. And to receive Christ as our own gift to God is to begin to taste eternal life. It's to know God and to love him. It's to begin imaging God in our own lives. And just as Christ shows, loving God cannot help but overflow into loving our neighbor. There is no goodness without generosity because there is no goodness that is either not either God or from God. And so we must make certain that we as Christians are a generous people. Ask yourself this week, how might you be especially generous with your money, your time, your influence, your skills, your competencies, your food, your plans, your ambitions? Again, there is no such thing as a goodness that does not give. It simply doesn't exist. If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Christ here is not calling us to do anything that he has not already done in full on our behalf. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for all that you've given to us. We thank you that all is gift from our creation to our salvation in Christ. We pray, Lord, you would help us to receive the gift of Christ ever more fully. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.